Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Psalm 13. We are going to look at Psalm 13 and 14 tonight. Neither of them are particularly long and neither of them are particularly difficult. However, there are good theological bases for what David is writing here that are carried over into the New Testament, so we will look at some of that. Let's start with a question. I have a question for all of you to begin tonight. Does God deserve praise and worship and thanksgiving regardless of your circumstances? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really what David is getting at in Psalm 13. It's not complicated. It is typical of many of the psalms that we have seen and are going to see from David where he begins the psalm by describing the situation that he's in, describing his circumstances, and asking God, begging God, praying to God, where are you, God, in the midst of all this? And then at some point in the psalm, he gets his mind right and reminds himself that God is worthy of praise, that God is still there, that God is still on his throne doing whatever is good for him. So the contrast is between the circumstances that David finds himself in and the particular circumstances of Psalm 13 include the fact that God seems to just be hiding from David. David can't seem to find God in any positive way in the events that he is in. And yet, he conforms his thinking about his circumstances to the theology that he already knows. And that is one of the important aspects of proper theology. If your theology is correct, then your theology will help you get through your circumstances rather than your circumstances conforming or changing or transforming your theology, which is what all too often happens. People have sometimes weak theologies, and then their circumstances in life undermine their theology, undermine their thinking. But if you have a firm understanding of God, who he is, his sovereignty, his ability to do whatever he wants with whoever he wants, anytime he wants, then your circumstances will be informed by your theology, which will allow you to get through your circumstances in a much better, much healthier, much more biblical way because you understand the God you're dealing with. So that's essentially what we see here in Psalm 13, which starts, How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? And so David is starting right off on the footing of, I'm in trouble. I'm in difficulty. We don't know what the particular circumstances are here. In a moment, he's going to say that his enemies are exulting over him. And so he's asking God, restore me, save me, save my throne, save the kingdom. 
and yet you're allowing this to happen. So how long is this going to go on, O Yahweh? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I don't like when preachers do practical application that is nothing more than Jesus wept. Have you ever felt like weeping? That kind of. And yet I feel compelled when I read, uh, how long will you hide your face from me? I feel compelled to ask that question. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever been in a case where you just feel like, where is God? Why is he hiding from me? Why am I getting no relief from this? Why am I suffering through this? Why am I enduring this? And God doesn't seem to be any help to me. Just turn your face toward me. Why are you hiding from me? Well, that describes David's circumstance, and that describes our circumstance as we're going through the tough times of this life, which is why, again, I stress that a proper theology will get you through your circumstances. Don't let your circumstances change what you know theologically. Because David is in a situation where he's asking God, how long is this going to go on? Are you going to forget me forever? Obviously, hyperbole. How long will you hide your face from me? And how long shall I take counsel in my soul? In other words, David is saying, I got to figure this out by myself. Why, why, are you, why have you left me? Why haven't you given me the wisdom, the insight, which he's going to say in a moment, to understand how to deal with this circumstance? The only person I have to turn to is me, and I'm trying to figure it out myself. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? And how long will my enemy be exalted over me? So his circumstance seems to be that he has no counselors that he can really trust, that he's having to figure it out by himself, within himself. God is not giving him the insight. In verse 3, he's going to say, enlighten my eyes. Which means, give me wisdom, give me insight, give me some kind of spiritual understanding because it's all left up to me right now. And David seems to understand his own lack of capacity to figure out, as the king of Israel, what the best approach is. And even his enemies are now mocking him and exalting over him. And I have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Boy, you can hear the desperation in that statement. Mm -hmm. After everything he's described about his situation, how hard his situation is, that he's even got his enemies exalting over him, like this is going to be the end or the downfall of his kingship. And then he cries out, consider this, consider my circumstances, consider my enemies, consider Israel, and answer me, O Lord my God, O Yahweh my God. Enlighten my eyes. Give me understanding is what that means. And lest I sleep the sleep of death, that extra the sleep is added by the NASB translators, it's just, lest I sleep the death. So apparently, whatever situation he is in, if it continues down that road, it's going to kill him. And so 
He is asking God, give me some insight, give me some understanding, give me some direction here. I need to know what to do, how to best rule your people, how to make wise decisions about my enemies. I can't do this on my own. Give me some insight or I'm just going to die. Verse 4. This is in response to the fact that he's just going to die. Lest my enemies say... I've overcome him. He's already got his enemies mocking him. He's already got his enemies exalting themselves over him. And if he dies as a result, the enemies are going to say, well, now we've completely overcome him. He died because of us. So David's really building his case to God here. Give me some insight. Give me some wisdom. Answer me in the midst of all this or else I'm going to die, and then my enemies are going to rejoice over me. They're going to take responsibility for it. They're going to think that they have overcome me, lest my adversaries rejoice when I am, the NASB says, shaken, when he is removed from his seat of power. Then they're going to rejoice over that. So you can hear that David's attitude throughout this is, don't let this happen, God. Don't let my enemies rejoice over me. Don't let these circumstances kill me. And where are you? Now, what's interesting is, before you get to the very last verse of this psalm, you don't hear David say that his circumstances changed. David does not say, and then God showed up, and he told me important stuff. And I went and told my generals, and we went and beat up on the enemies, and I was restored to my throne, and everything improved automatically. He doesn't say any of that. Instead, what he says is firm theological statements about who God is and that God deserves worship regardless of the circumstances. He doesn't say his circumstances changed. Instead, he just exalts in God. And so, verse 5, but I have trusted in thy loving kindness. So here David is saying, what am I going to do? I'm in a really bad situation. What am I going to lean on? Who am I going to trust? Well, I am the king of Israel, and you did take me out of the sheepfold, and you did set me on the throne of Israel, and you did all of that because of your loving kindness. So you've already shown me, you've already demonstrated to me how your loving kindness has carried me through my life. Therefore, even in these circumstances, I'm going to trust that the same God who put me here is the same God who's going to take me through this. Mm. I'm going to trust in your loving kindness regardless of my circumstances. But I have trusted in thy loving kindness, and my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. Again, David doesn't seem to be talking about eternal salvation here. He's not afraid that when he dies, he's going to be judged and sent into outer darkness. It's not what he's discussing here. He's talking about the kingdom being preserved. He's talking about his kingship and his throne being preserved. And so God, time and time again, has saved Israel because they are his chosen people. And so David, again, looking back on his history with God, can say, okay, God has preserved me time and time again. God has delivered me time and time again. God has provided for me time and time again. Therefore, I'm going to trust him because I know of his loving kindness 
and I'm going to rejoice in my heart because of his history of saving me. Again, he doesn't say, God help me, oh, and then the help came, and then my faith was increased. What he says is, my circumstances are really bad, but I remember God. I remember what God's like. I remember what God has done. And based on God's preserving nature, based on his loving kindness, based on his history and my experiences with him, I'm going to trust him. My heart's going to rejoice because he's taken care of me this long. And finally, verse 6, I will sing to the Lord. How did he go from... How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever to, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. All David did was get his mind right. And that transition in his mind was a result of him realizing the loving kindness of God and the continual salvation of God. He is remembering theologically who God is and what God's like. And based on his knowledge of God, he put his trust and his heart and his praise in God, even though his circumstances didn't change. Well, that's a very good theological lesson. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, the circumstances of our life are going to make us doubt after our flesh. And the best thing to do in the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of the confusions of this life, the best thing you can do is sing to God. Best thing you can do is worship God. Best thing you can do is praise God. And get your head out of the sand. Get your mind off of your circumstances and how bad you have it. And where are you, God? And have you forgotten me forever? You know theologically he has not forgotten you forever. You know theologically that he is preserving you, and the very fact that you're breathing right now is proof that he is consistent in his loving kindness toward you. But we get so involved in our flesh and in our circumstances that we'll start crying, where are you, God? And the answer is to remember what you already know. That is why I have said so often over the last 21 years, that it's really good to know the sovereignty of God before the trouble comes. Because when the trouble comes, it's going to be hard to learn the sovereignty of God in the midst of the trouble because you're in survival mode. Mm. But you'll get through survival mode if you enter that survival mode knowing about the sovereignty of God. It will help you in your suffering to know that everything that you're going through first passed through nail-scarred hands. He allowed that to get to you, so it has some purpose, it has some benefit, it is working his plan in your life, and it is going to produce in you the very thing that he is determined to produce in you. Okay, I didn't make that all up. Paul drew that out of the circumstances of life, and he developed it in his own theology, and I think that Paul got a lot of it from this psalm right here, because I'm going to show you in a moment how much of the next psalm Paul quotes right in the book of Romans. So clearly Paul is really familiar with this section of the book of Psalms. But for the moment, turn to Romans 5. We're going to go to Romans 5, starting right at the very first verse. Here is Paul's argument that as we go through the difficulties of life, it creates 
certain characteristics within us. It's not just random, pointless difficulty and trials in life. It's trials in life that have purpose, and the end result of them is that we come away with a greater faith, a greater understanding, a greater patience, a greater endurance, because we recognize that God gets us through each of them successively. So the next time you come up against a trial, you know, okay, God's going to get me through this, too, because he's gotten me through all the other ones. Here's how Paul puts it. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's what Paul's been arguing about for the first four chapters, that everyone is sinful and that the only real justification is by faith, not by the law. So having finished that argument, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Okay, I get exulting, celebrating the fact that we have this introduction by faith into the grace of God and exulting in the hope and the glory of God. I get that. But exulting in your tribulations? How do you exult in the difficulties and trials of this life unless you have a proper theology, which Paul is laying out for you here so that you can understand that the trials, the tribulations of this life have a purpose. God is working his purpose through you, through the difficulties he's taking you through, and therefore you can exult even in your trials, even in your tribulations. It's the same thing David went through. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing the tribulation brings about perseverance. Every time you go through a difficulty, you become more confident that you're going to get through the next difficulty. And you begin persevering through the difficulties. Verse 4, and that perseverance brings about proven character so that you have this godly attitude no matter what the circumstances. Again, the circumstances don't change your theology. The theology helps you through the circumstances. And that proven character produces hope. And I've told you many times, the Greek word elpis is not hope the way we think of it in the English, where you're saying, I hope something happens. It might, it might not. Elpis has that same basis, pistis, as the word faith. And so what it is is a confident expectation of what you know is going to occur. It hasn't occurred yet but you're really looking forward to it, and you're confident it's coming. Okay, well, that kind of faithful confidence grows as a result of you going through trials and difficulties, which create perseverance, which creates proven character, which produces that hope. You don't start at confident expectation. You have to go through difficulties and trials to get yourself to that kind of hope, that kind of expectation that God is going to be God. He's going to get you through the difficulties you're going through. That's going to produce perseverance in you. And verse 5 says, 
And that hope, that confident expectation of the deliverance that you know is coming, that God is going to deliver you through it, that hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Just like David saying, my circumstances are terrible, but I'm going to remember the loving kindness of God. It's one of the reasons that I think Paul was very informed by Psalm 13 when he wrote this theology. He didn't just make this up out of whole cloth. He understood this because he understood what David was writing in the Psalms. Regardless of your circumstances, remember the love of God that has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's why the confident expectation does not disappoint. So the trials, the difficulties of life have purpose. That purpose is to build up our faith and our confidence in God. That comes about when we have memory, when we remember what God has done for us, our history with God, our theology about God, and our memory that the circumstances of life. Here, I'll put it this way. I did this a couple weeks ago on a Sunday. How many of you have ever gone through a circumstance that you thought was going to kill you? I've certainly been there several times. I thought, this is it. I'm done. How many of you that just raised your hand actually died? Oh, I shouldn't have my hand up, I guess. <laughs> yeah, because the reason you didn't die from those circumstances that you thought were going to kill you is because God preserved you through it. And therefore, the next time you go through something you think is going to kill you, you realize that the God who preserved you through the last one is going to preserve you through this one, too, or he's going to take you home. Either way, you have hope. Either way, you have confident expectation that God knows exactly what he's doing, and he's producing faith in you, and he's doing it through the circumstances of your life. How do you know that? Theology. Get your theology right, it'll take you through your circumstances. Don't have your theology right, your circumstances are going to bury you because you don't have the theology to understand the God that you're dealing with. Make sense? Yes, it does. Psalm 14. You're going to recognize this. It is a very well-known psalm. And you can keep your finger there in Romans because we are going to end up back in Romans in a moment. Psalm 14 starts with, The fool has said in his heart, Remember when we were in the book of Proverbs, as we were going through Proverbs verse by verse, how frequently did Solomon contrast the fool and the wise man? And how often did Solomon tell us the characteristics of a wise man and the characteristics of a fool? This is one of the characteristics of a fool. And yet, you can look around the world right now, and you will see that the world is just chock full of these kind of fools. Because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And he might sound clever, he might sound scientific, he might know his Darwin forward and backward. I had somebody on Facebook the other day say that with my long white beard, I resemble Darwin. And that was almost enough to get me to shave. <laughs> but not quite. Not. Yeah, they may sound like they really know what they're talking about, but they are just fools because the evidence for God is everywhere. 
the very fact that humans exist. I was listening just today to an apologist basically taking apart Darwinistic theory and saying that the first cell that had to replicate replicated itself the way that we see cells do now, which means that he replicated himself with like 99.99% accuracy as he replicated himself, and that you can't explain that kind of perfect replication on the basis of Darwinian theory. Darwinian theory doesn't have any explanation for a single cell being that replicates. How does it have that kind of wisdom? How does it know it needs to do that? Why, why didn't it just live and die? Anyway, my point is that somebody can talk that kind of Darwinistic theory and sound intelligent, but then when you get down into the minutia of it, you realize that that is not a good explanation, and you realize, you know, that's really kind of foolish because there is no explanation for the stars, the heavens, and in fact, Paul argues that the heavens declare God's existence. The fact that the heavens exist proves God's existence. And so, the fool, David writes, because he's a fool, starts with the assumption there is no God. And here's why they say that. They are corrupt. They are sinful. They are depraved. David knows total depravity, even though he doesn't know the terminology. Now he's going to prove it. They who are corrupt have committed abominable deeds. And there is no one who does good. Sound familiar? It's carried over into the New Testament. It's part of Paul's argument for total depravity. Years ago, when I was first coming to understand the doctrines of grace, and gosh, that would be 33 years ago now, I heard the inestimable theological authority, Jimmy Swaggart, once say, if total depravity is true, then the other doctrines of Calvinism are unavoidable. Of course, then he went on to say, fortunately, total depravity is not true. And it went downhill from there. But even he realized that if total depravity is true, then salvation has to be by grace, because it can't be because of anything that's within a person. Okay, so does the Bible actually teach total depravity, total corruption of human beings? Well, the very fact that David just told us there's no one who does good, it's total depravity right there. In its simplest form, there's nobody who does godly things. There's nobody who's holy and righteous enough to appease God. Why? Because they are corrupt, and they have committed abominable deeds. So their abominable deeds are going to condemn them, and there's no one who does good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand Actually, that is anyone who acts wisely. If there's anybody whose activity in life demonstrates that they have any kind of wisdom. And so here's God looking at all of humanity to see if there's anybody. You know, before the flood in the book of Genesis, we read that God 
looked at men and saw that their hearts were only wickedness continually. That resulted in the flood. Now in David's time, David writes that again, the Lord is looking down from heaven. We're talking about righteous, holy God looks down at the sons of men to see if there's anybody who has the comprehension, the understanding to act wisely. A moment ago, he said that they all commit abominable deeds. That would be the opposite of acting wisely. Walking after the precepts, the rules, the law of God, that would be acting wisely. But nobody does it. And there's nobody who seeks after God. Okay, so turn to Romans 3 for a moment. You know we had to go there because it's where Paul picks this up and actually quotes it in his development of the theology of everybody's sinfulness. We're going to go to Romans 3. Let's just start reading at verse 10. Oh, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Are we Jews any better than they Gentiles? No, not at all, because we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Well, that sounds like total depravity. Mm. Verse 10. As it is written. He's going to quote the psalm we just read. As it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none that understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now Paul goes on from there. We're not going to concentrate on Romans tonight. But Paul goes on from there to continue describing their inability to do any good, to do any righteousness. And how they're all going to be condemned by the law. And that is why grace is so necessary leading to salvation. So Paul's theology of grace is built on the fact that men are totally depraved. Jimmy Swaggart, the inestimable theologian, got that right. And then turned around and got it all wrong. But it is true that if men are totally depraved the way the Bible describes them, Old or New Testament then salvation has to be by grace. There's no other choice. All right, back in Psalm 14, verse 2, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know? This is in contrast to the word understand. They have no understanding. They don't know how to act wisely. And now David observing that among all the wickedness of this world says, how do they not know? How do they not get it? The evidence is everywhere. The evidence is overwhelming. And they just don't get it in their darkness in their depravity they don't get it they don't know they don't act wisely they don't understand do all the workers of wickedness not know and then he says that these workers of wickedness eat up my people the way they would eat bread it's a good analogy the way that they stuff their faces they also do damage to my people 
and they do not call upon the Lord. David just described them as wicked continually. That the Lord looks down from heaven to see if there's any who understand, who, if there's any who seek God, and all of them have turned aside altogether. They have become corrupt. Their deeds are nothing but evil deeds. That's why they do damage to the people of God and to the people of David, to the people of Israel. And the one thing they do not do is call on the Lord. And that is the obvious demonstration of their corruptness. Corrupt people, sinful people, don't call on God. And that simple reality is David's greatest proof of their corruption. It's still true. We still see a world that's not calling on God, that in fact is rushing headlong as fast as it can into every form of corruption that is anti-biblical and anti-God. We see it all day, every day. We saw it in a vote in the Senate today with an abortion bill that was not just reestablishing Roe versus Wade, but the bill itself said abortion for any reason up to the point of birth. It far exceeded Roe versus Wade, and they brought it to a vote today. Why did they do that? Corruption. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They just want to do whatever corrupt thing their corrupt heads can come up with and then try to justify it. Do the workers of this kind of wickedness not understand? They eat up my people the way that they eat bread, and they do not call upon the Lord. And there they are in great dread for the Lord is with, the NASB says, are with the righteous generation. The Hebrew word means the posterity, the posterity in this case of Israel, the posterity of the people that God has chosen, the ones who are righteous not because of their own works, because they're included in the wickedness of all humanity, but some people have been chosen, some people have been converted, some people have been regenerated, and those people become the righteous posterity of God, and God is going to protect and defend his righteous posterity. Therefore, David could say, the wicked who are busy eating up the people of God the way you would eat up bread are in for great dread. Yeah, because once God starts judging, think about Jesus talking about the, the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And he said, I was in jail, you didn't visit me, I was hungry, you didn't feed me, naked, you didn't clothe me. And they said, when did we ever do that? And he says, if you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Okay, if that becomes the standard, Think about God's judgment against the wicked of this world who continue to do damage to the righteous and the God-fearing in this world. That's a deep level of judgment. In other words, they're going to be in great dread. David understands the future for these people. There they will be in great dread for God is with the righteous posterity. And then he turns back again to those wicked, those who are going to end up in dread, but those who are currently eating up his people the way that they would eat bread. He refers to them as you in the sentence, verse 6. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted. 
In other words, not only have you afflicted people, not only have you impoverished people, but then you also shame those people. You destroy those people. You can see why David would say it's like eating them up, devouring them. You put to shame the thinking, the counsel, the hopes, the plans, the intentions of the people you afflict. But the Lord is his refuge. Last week, we read David saying in chapter 11, Psalm 11, in the Lord, I will take refuge. And I compared that refuge to a strong tower. How David was saying, I run to my fortified city and God is my protection. Well, now David has expanded that concept beyond himself and said that the afflicted who are the righteous posterity of God have the Lord as their refuge. So even as the wickedness of this world is tearing them down, eating them up and spitting them out, they don't look to the world for comfort. They don't look to the world for their refuge. They don't look to the world for answers or righteousness. Instead, they look to God. They look to Yahweh because that's the only place you're going to find genuine hope in this life, in this world. And God knows that. I've insisted again for years that the circumstances God takes you through, if they end up driving you to your knees so that he has cornered you where he is your only hope, he knows that and he did it on purpose. He knows if you're out wandering. He knows if you're getting too fleshly. He knows if you're getting too worldly. And he will drive you back to himself by taking you through difficult circumstances until you reach the point of saying, I have nowhere to go but God. And then you run to the Lord, and that's exactly what he intended when he brought the trouble in the first place. And that's an act of grace. That's the goodness and the loving kindness of God that he doesn't leave you to yourself, doesn't let you just wander off into your flesh, that he preserves you, that he regathers you the way a shepherd gathers his sheep. He brings you back into the fold. So that's what David is describing here. Even though the world puts to shame the counsel of the afflicted, the Lord becomes our safety, our refuge, our strong tower. And then David gets a little eschatological in the last verse and is looking forward to the day when the holiness of God is going to break out, not necessarily in the whole world, even though we know that's going to happen, but David is really thinking about Zion. He's really thinking about Jerusalem. He's really thinking about Israel because he's seeing how Israel is erring and running away from their God and how they're given to idols and And so he says, oh, that salvation, restoration, rebuilding, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Zion is Jerusalem, where God has chosen to place his name, where the temple of God is, and where the house of the king is. And so it's from Zion that righteousness and salvation are going to go out to the whole world. But first, it's going to start in Israel. Again, that kind of Israelology is what we've been teaching here for 21 years. And even though people will tar us with all kinds of name-calling, and oh, you're a dispensationalist, or whatever, I can't help it. The Bible keeps saying things like this, that David's prayer and expectation is 
that the salvation of Israel is going to come out of Zion. And there's no way to misread that or warp it to push the church into it or to say, no, what that really means is God gives up on Israel in the long run. Instead, it is David's hope, his confidence. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. And by the way, it does. Because Christ himself comes out of Zion. And he is declared immediately in the temple of God to be the deliverance, the restoration of Israel in the temple, in Zion. That's why I said David gets a little eschatological here. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When? When the Lord, Yahweh, restores his captive people and Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. I don't care how race-specific that sounds. It is exactly what David is praying because he is the king of Israel. Yahweh is the God of Israel. The preserved people are the people of Israel. The righteous remnant comes out of Israel. And God continues in his salvific work for Israel, even sending the Redeemer of Israel because God calls himself the Savior of Israel. And so that language permeates the Bible. And David's prayer here is that God would just do what God said he's going to do. He's praying God's word back to him and hoping, looking forward to the day that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion when Yahweh restores his captive people and then Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. Jacob, heel catcher, sinner, who had his name changed to Israel. David calls him both names. Jacob's going to rejoice. Israel's going to be glad. And then that made it into the Bible, into the very word of God. So we'll ask the question again. Do you think that's going to happen? Yes. Yeah. And why do we think it's going to happen despite circumstances? Because we got our theology right. How did we get our theology right? We read the Bible. So you read the Bible, you adjust your theology according to what it says, and then you can have confidence despite the circumstances how often through all these years have I defined faith as trusting God's word more than you trust your circumstances? Despite your circumstances, stand on the word of God and say, this is more true than my circumstances. That's what David did. That's what all the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 did. And that's what we're called to do. To stand on the word of God, whatever it says is what we believe, and understanding that proper theology will get us through all the circumstances that would undermine our faith. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.